It is always a blessing to meet with the church wherever we might be. It is a blessing to meet with the church in our home congregation. Now, I know that when I was in Mexico, because of our grandkids told us that there were certain adults that were talking about me and that I preached different in different places. And it is true. There's no doubt about that. The, uh, uh, when I was in Jamaica oh, a few years back, Sister Sheena came up to me after I'd preached, and I got wound up a little bit, and she says, she was very sheepish at first, and she finally says, you preach like a black man. <laughs> I took it as a compliment, needless to say. And it, it, but I do preach in Jamaica a little bit different. But, you know, most of life is not like when you get up in the morning and you get a cup of coffee and it gets you all started in the day and the rest of the day you just kind of smooth out and you go through life. And in local work, that's really basically in local preaching, that's what I try to do is, is stay on a more even keel now, every congregation needs a shot in the arm with gospel meetings and special speakers and things like that. And we all need that. And, and I remember when I first became a Christian, we were worshiping with the congregation down in Oklahoma City, and the local preacher was preaching a meeting up here in Tulsa. And so one night, a group of us went to Tulsa, and someone said to the, to the local preacher who, was, uh, who we knew, said, well, you don't preach at home like you do here at this gospel meeting. Well, no, it's not quite the same circumstance. And so, you know, we, we tread through it. And a little bit like the Bible Institute of Missouri, other preaching schools that I've worked with, when you get started and you want the students to have a little bit of excitement about the, about the study that you're getting ready to engage in, the first few days, you're a little bit more, you know, positive and a little bit more outgoing and things like that. But ultimately, you get into a place where, you know, you just need to tread through it. And so everybody gets and understands what we're what we're dealing with. So that's really at least that's my philosophy as far as preaching is concerned. And that helps you to understand. Now, I could get wound up if I want, and, uh, but I don't think it's, ne it's necessary do that on a regular basis. In fact, I'm not sure that would be beneficial. In fact, I'm quite confident it would not be. Well, the next beatitude in our examination is found in Matthew, the eighth chapter, or fifth chapter in verse eight. And as we have noticed in the beatitudes, we're not talking about a random order, uh, but one that is built one upon another. Now, I want to approach this a little bit different with this particular lesson than I have in the previous lessons. The first three of, of the Beatitudes deal with our personal understanding of our spiritual need. We look at ourselves in the light of God. God is so so powerful, so mighty, so magnificent. We see ourselves. We are poor in spirit. We're humbled by that. And because we're humbled by His greatness, and we see the, what, the state that we're in, then we mourn over our sin, and then we, in meekness, seek God. So it's really dealing with our spiritual needs. The, the hunger and thirst is the fourth one, of course, and it's pivotal. 
And it reveals how we can satisfy our spiritual need. We understand our spiritual need because of those first three Beatitudes, but then we want to know, well, how can we satisfy those spiritual needs? Well, we satisfy them by hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And when we see righteousness and what the Bible teaches concerning righteousness, then we are satisfied by those things. And the last or the next three are uh, deal with and reveal the result of that satisfaction. Because we have hungered and thirst after righteousness, we then are merciful, pure in heart, and peacemakers. Now let's look at it a little bit different way though. We also find the last three corresponds with the first three. The first is, of course, being poor in spirit. Well, being poor in spirit then leads us to be merciful with with uh, one another. Think about it this way. You know, there's all kinds of, of support groups out here in the world. And isn't it easy to be in that support group and then to be supportive with one another? Well, brethren, the church in some sense is a support group. We're all in the same boat. We've all have sinned. We've all fall short. We all look at God and we see how great he is. And every single one of us are in the same boat in that we find ourselves humbled by God's greatness. Well, don't we find, at least we should find, that we ought to be merciful with one another because we're in that same boat and we want each other to go to heaven? And so they, they correspond with one another. The same way with mourning and also pure in heart. The person who truly mourns over sin is going to seek how that they can be pure in heart. It is always interesting when people mourn over their sin, but then they, they try to justify themselves. They allow pride to kick in and they justify themselves. But that's not the Christian. The Christian, he mourns over his sin, but then he strives to be pure in heart. And we'll look at being pure heart more in a moment. Then the person that has meekness is a person that will become the peacemaker. Remember, we talked about meekness being that person who submits to the will of God. Ultimately, that's what meekness is all about, submitting to the will of God. Well, if we're going to submit to the will of God, wouldn't we also want others to submit to the will of God? Don't think about peacemakers in the sense of or not only in the sense of bringing hostile, hostile people back together, but think about it in the sense of helping others to make peace with God. Well, because we are meek and we want peace with God and we submit to God's will, then we also want to help others to have peace with God. So it is the case that these are not in random order and they clearly deal with one with another. But our lesson tonight is really about being pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. <clears throat> so we're going to look at it then in three different ways. We're going to look at it first, the terms. And basically we're going to look at the term heart and also the term um, pure. And then we're going to consider a couple of other things as we go through this. So first then, let's look at the term heart. 
Now, the term heart is a reference to the very core of Christianity. Without understanding the heart and where the heart plays in this whole matter, we cannot really understand what Christianity is all about. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to, to 3, now remember 1 Corinthians 13 is what we call the love chapter, the great love chapter. And that's what I teach the kids with sunshiners. What's the great love chapter, kids? 1 Corinthians 13. But the first three verses are actually dealing with the motivation behind the things that we do. Now, I know that sometimes we'll use 1 Corinthians 13 with reference to marital love. And, and I don't think it's necessarily a misapplication, but it's really a little bit of a misunderstanding. And what I mean by that is when you look at the book of 1 Corinthians and you put it back in context, Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians dealt with the problems that existed in the church at Corinth. And in fact, nearly every chapter is dealing with a different problem in Corinth. And one of the problems that they had is they, some thought they were greater than others because of the miraculous gifts. And so in the context of the miraculous gifts, which is basically chapters 12, 13, and 14, he then gave us this love chapter. And it's how we deal with one another. But he begins that love chapter with the actual motivation itself. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians 13. Follow along if you will. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And though I have, all, have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so, at, so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. And, and so Paul then dealt with the very fact that, you know, if we could speak in all kinds of languages, he's not talking about uh, ecstatic utterances like the religious world or some in the religious world want to point to with this particular passage in mind but he's talking about preaching and teaching and the things that the gifts of the spirit would provide for those in Corinth at that particular time and if we could preach the whole world but we don't have love what good is it we're just a tinkling cymbal and a sounding brass nothing more than that I'm always reminded of what Brother Jim O'Connor used to say. People don't care what you know until they know you care. And that's what this verse is about. We can stand up and we can preach all that we want. But until we love those that we preach to, it means nothing. It's a tinkling symbol. And then the same thing is true with the second part of it. In the second verse... He, he talks about having this great faith and the things that are associated with it. But, you know, if we have great faith, but it isn't motivated by love, what good is it? And then notice verse 3. It's making sacrificial uh, giving. And so if I give all my goods to feed the poor, well, okay, that's a great act. But if you don't have love, what is it? And 
and then he says, give my body to be burned. In other words, sacrifice myself. And yet if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Love is the basic core of Christianity. Love or the heart rather is the core of Christianity. The Pharisees had all the, the outward things in order. There's no doubt about it. You look at the Pharisees and you look at the things that they did. They had the outward things in order. But what were they on the inside? Full of wickedness. They washed the outside of the cup and of the platter, but did nothing for the inside. Nothing for the heart. Now, what does the heart mean within Scripture? Well, some want to point to to the heart and say, well, it means only the mind. And I think about different preachers I've known over the years. And in fact, one fellow, he would always point to his head when he talked about the heart. And there's no doubt that the heart does refer to the mind on different occasions, but it's more than just the mind. Jesus said in Mark, the 12th chapter in verse 30, when asked, what is the great commandment? Jesus said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy uh, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when we look at that, if heart and mind was the same thing, then it doesn't make sense. I mean, he just repeated himself if it has reference to the same thing. There's more to it than just simply the, the intellect. The use of both the heart and the mind indicates that that they are something different. Now, being a disciple of Jesus is more than just simply intellectual. I hope that all of us know that. Now, does the intellect have a part in it? Well, yeah, the intellect has a part in it. Nobody disagrees with that. The intellect does have a part in it, but it does not exclude the understanding of biblical doctrine, and it does not exclude more than just that. Christians must have more than mechanical, intellectual, or academic interest in the Word of God. Now, I strongly think about and teach about memorizing Scripture. I don't know how a person can write the law of God upon their hearts without memorization. I just don't understand how that could be done. So I believe in memorization. I believe that Writing the Word of God upon our hearts is more than just memorization, but I don't know how you could do it without memorization. But at the same time, it's more than just that. It's more than just simply memorizing things. That's just simply academics. And I always think about different ones I've known over the years and heard about over the years that have memorized great portions of Scripture, but they don't apply it to their lives. It's a great difference between the two. It's more than just simply a matter of the mind. Others define the heart as being the conduct. Again, the Pharisees had the conduct, at least the outward manifestation of the conduct in, uh, in their lives. They reduced Judaism to merely a matter of conduct, a matter of ethics, a matter of behavior. Believing out the heart what happened? They became whited sepulchers, which appear beautiful on the outside, but what are they full of? 
dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Matthew 23 and verse 27. Others define the heart as only the seat of the affections or the emotions. Now we talked about this to some degree already, but this is really, I think, a reaction to the first definition. And I remember when I first became a member of the church that we met with some and, and they, were, they were talking about, oh, the Church of Christ is known because they have all the intellect and mind and they have all the intelligence and all the knowledge, but there's no emotions that are involved in it. Well, that wasn't true then and it's not true now. The Lord's church has both. It should have both. Now, being a disciple is intellectual. There's no doubt about that. But it's not, but it's not merely intellectual. But neither is it merely emotional either. We need something a little more substantial than simply the ever-changing emotions of men. In reality, the heart is the center of our personalities and includes all of the above. It includes the intellect. It includes the conduct. It includes the, the affections and the emotions. It is the total man. It is the center of our being. It is the source of every activity for everything stems back to the heart. And that's true whether it's good or bad. Listen to Matt, or Mark, the seventh chapter, verses 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these things, Jesus said, come from the within and defile the man. It is interesting, and I think it's because of our educational system, that some people think that change the environment and you'll change the man. Well, they teach that to change a person, you've got to change his or her environment. And our, our prison system is full of this thought. And I always think to myself, well, you know, they have changed, that prisoner has changed his environment several different times, and yet it doesn't change him. Education alone does not make a good man a good man. Because we know highly educated men, and yet they're utterly wicked. I mean, haven't we been reading in the news about different individuals? I mean, for, for almost from now on, almost from probably the beginning of time, we've read about well-educated men that are extremely wicked. The trouble is not really the environment. It is the heart. It is not from without. It is from within. And that's why the prison system sometimes and oftentimes does not make a difference as far as people's lives. But you know what can make a difference? It's the gospel of Christ. 
And I'm thankful that there are men that are willing to go into prisons to teach the gospel because that can change people's lives. Well, let's deal with what it means to be pure. The word pure in, in this particular case actually means without hypocrisy. And it refers to, to singleness of heart. Now that's what Jesus and actually what others talked about in other places, that singleness of heart. Rather than being double-minded, we need to have a singleness of heart. And Jesus would go into this more detail over in Matthew, the sixth chapter, same sermon, just later on in more detail. In verses 22 to 24, he said, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man could serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Now the whole problem that Jesus dealt with on that particular occasion was the very fact that they were trying to serve two masters. They were not single of heart. But how many people do we know like that? That try to serve multiple masters as far as this world is concerned. They try to serve God. They try to serve man. They try to serve man in different ways. They try to serve themselves. They try to serve their families. They try to serve their pocketbook. They try to serve etc. 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 But you cannot serve God and mammon. It's either one way or the other. We have to have singleness of heart. And purity is living that life without the hypocrisy of the other. Like one old gospel preacher said, you cannot serve God sitting on a cake of ice. And what he meant by that, either you're going to get up or you're going to get frozen to it. It's one way or the other. It's just not possible. We've got to get on one side of the fence or the other. All of us realize that, at least I hope we do, and I think even people of the world realize that we have a war within ourselves. And we've talked about that war before. And in Romans chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, Paul talked about it. He says, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my member. And so we have that law or that war within ourselves. And we want to do what's right. And we, we know what we ought to do. And our mind says, this is what we ought to do. But then we turn around and give in to temptation. <coughs> we have that war. Well, we need to settle that war. Remember who we're fighting for. Remember what we're fighting for. And avoid the, the, um, the hypocrisy uh, contained in it. David asked God to unite his heart, make it single, make it one. Psalm 86 and verse number 11, he said, Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Now, I've always found that interesting. He would say, Unite my heart. We need to have 
a heart that is united, have singleness of heart. A second thing that purity must also include is it means to cleanse. Without defilement, all of us need that cleansing. We need that cleansing from God. In heaven, only those that are pure in heart will be there. You're not going to find others that are there that, that, that uh, are not pure in heart. And in fact, when I think about heaven, one of the best things to me that you could say about heaven is there's not going to be any murderers there. There's not going to be Hitlers and, and men like that. They're not going to be there. No Al Capones there. No Bonnie and Clyde there. And the list could go on and on. In Revelation 21, verse 27, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abominations or maketh a lie, but they that, uh, which are written in the Lamb's book of life. In this world, we're going to have evil all around us all the time. But in the world to come, not so. It's just simply not going to be there. To be pure is to be like our great example. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22 talks about our great example. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. We cannot be pure in and of ourselves. We need cleansing. We need God's plan of salvation. Now, all that's here that's, a, uh, that's an adult, I think all of us are members of the Lord's church. But we all know the plan of salvation. And we know that second law of pardon. Also, do we not? At least I hope we do. And so we, we have that second law of pardon to cleanse us from all of sin. We all need that second law of pardon. And aren't we glad that God's provided it for us? Now, there's a special note that we ought to note, and that is our obedience to God's plan of salvation does not in any way negate righteousness and holy living. It just simply is, doesn't negate that. And sometimes people think, well, if I just obey the plan of salvation and I'm baptized, then everything's right. Well, it may be right for a time, but it's not always right. We have to live righteously as well. In Hebrews 12, verse 14, he says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man... Now notice, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. If we don't follow after righteousness and holiness, we will not see the Lord. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, this then is the message which we have heard, <clears throat> which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness of all at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. We cannot have fellowship with God if we're walking in darkness. It's just not possible. First John chapter 3, verse 7, we noted, I believe it was last week or the week before, little children, let no man despise you, or deceive you, rather. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. And thus purity must begin in the heart. 
and will then reveal itself in a person's words and in a person's actions. Now let's look at the result of purity of heart. He said, for they shall see God. So the whole verse says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, the first thing we have to note is that God is invisible. Well, there are a number of passages that teach this, and I'm going to give you only a sampling of those. In John, the first chapter, verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. No man has seen God at any time. In John 5 and verse 37, And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. Now, Jesus made it very clear that nobody's heard his voice. Nobody has seen his shape. And so then we go back to the Old Testament. We say, well, how did they, they do all that with reference to Moses and different things like that? Well, those weren't actually seeing God. They were manifestations of God. They were similes of him. In Colossians 1 and verse number 15, who is the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature with reference to Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse Number 17, now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and uh, honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then finally in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16, and again a passage actually in reference to Jesus, who only hath immortality dwelling in lights, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. To whom be glory, or to, to whom be power, honor and power everlasting. Amen. So how can Jesus then say that we will see God? How can Jesus promise, blessed are they that are pure in heart, for they shall see God? Well, we can see God in the present time, not through our physical eyes, but through the eyes of faith. Not face to face, but we see him with the eyes of faith we see we can see him in nature and we can see his the results of what he did we can see him in the events of history and what we're talking about in the providential working of god throughout the history of mankind you look back over the years and you you consider all the things that god said to abraham to isaac and to jacob and then also to joseph and then finally to Moses and the promises that he gave that he would punish those seven nations of Palestine. We can see the providence of God in preserving his people to punish those nations. But then he raised up the Assyrians to punish Israel of the north. Then he raised up the Babylonians to punish Judah of the south. Then he raised up the Babylonians also to punish the Assyrians. And then he raised up the Medo Empire, Medo Persian Empire to punish the, the Babylonian Empire. Then he raised up the Greeks to punish the, the uh, Medo Persian Empire. And then he raised up Rome to punish the, the Grecian Empire. Well, then the list could go on and on. We don't always know the working of God. But we know that God is at work. And we know that God works 
providentially in the history of mankind. And so it is, we can see God in the work that he does in our history. We can also see God in the Bible, not with, again, not with our physical eyes, but with our spiritual eyes. We can see God in the Bible. We can see him in life, and we can see him in death. We can see God as Moses saw God, for he endured seeing him who is invisible, Hebrews 11 and verse 27. And not only can we see him, we must look for him. But then we can also see him in eternity. Today's vision is nothing compared to tomorrow's sight. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, John wrote, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You know, when this change is going to take place, and it will take, take place, and Paul dealt with the change that the immortal or the mortal would put on immortality and this corruptible will put on incorruption. When that change takes place and this old physical body is done away with and we put, put off that old earthly body and we put on that spiritual body, then our sight will change and we'll see him as he is. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 13, he said, And every creature with is, which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and which are in the sea and all that are in them heard, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that setteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Can you imagine being in the heavenly scene and being a part of that, that spiritual time that we will have? In Colossians 3 and verse 4, when Christ who is our life shall appear, then we also shall appear with him in glory. Not in this physical realm, not in this physical existence, not in the material, but we'll see him in glory and we'll be a part of him and he'll be a part of us. Now, how can our hearts become pure? Well, the passage I chose to, to consider with this in mind is Psalm 51 and verse 10, where David recorded, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, this does not mean that we are passive in all of this. Now, being passive and being active, I think most of us recognize what the difference is. But to remind us that being passive is something that we, we just let happen to us or just happens to us that we're not actively involved in it. Being active is that we take the action. Well, this is not passive. We cannot just simply let God zap us with some, some bolt of lightning and all of a sudden we're going to change. No, we have to be a part of it as well. 
So James 4 and verse number 8 says, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Now, cleansing your hands, your hands is a symbol of activity. And so we then must cleanse our hands. We must cleanse our activities. And we also must purify our hearts. Now, our actions will become purer when we purify our hearts. But we've got to get the right order in mind. In Philippians, the fourth chapter, verses 8 and 9, Paul would write, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Consider for a moment, what is your supreme desire? Think about it for a second. What is your foremost desire? What is your foremost ambition? Now I hope your foremost ambition in life is to see God. I mean, that's why we're here. That's why we became a Christian, because we want to see God. We want to enjoy the joys of heaven with Him. We want to be with Him. Now, sometimes people look at the verse that we're, we've been looking at, and they say, well, it's happiness. Well, no, happiness is not the aim that's actually the result. That's the benefit that we received. But we ought to want to see God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, he says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. If we want to see God, we ought to purify ourselves. And so Matthew 5 and verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This evening we do offer the invitation because we'd like to everybody to be saved and we want everybody not to leave without being right with God. And so we provide the invitation and that opportunity to you at this time. If you need to respond to the invitation, won't you come as together we stand and sing to encourage you.